Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk, a toxicology podcast made possible by contributions from the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. In this episode, we're going to delve back into chemical weapons uh, and this time talk about mustards. Now, sarin and other nerve gases tend to be what people think of when we talk about chemical weapons, but mustard agents can be equally debilitating. Uh, This is one of the agents that's stockpiled by the Syrian Chemical Weapons Program. Today, though, we're actually going to talk about a U.S. case. Yes, mustard uh, agent exposure in New England. And for this case, we'll be talking to Kat Weibrecht, an EM doc and toxicologist in Massachusetts. Here today with Kat Weibrecht, toxicology alumnus of the UMass Division of Toxicology. Hello. Very good. And we are here today to talk about mustard. Um, and I always hear mustard and I get kind of hungry because I like mustard on sandwiches with like ham and rye and Kat's laughing because she's, I don't know, what do you eat mustard on? <laughs> I'm laughing because you're making the connection to food. Everything is about food. Okay. All right. Um... Anyway, is it not a mustard? Do you eat mustard? No? Hot dog? What do you put on your hot dog? Oh, uh, well, hot dogs are really just a vehicle for the condiments. So mustard, ketchup, and relish. Occasionally some uh, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. Eat chili ever? No? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And I, I hate mayonnaise, so I'm a big mustard fan. But this is a different kind of mustard. We are actually talking about the kind of mustard uh, that is bad for you, unlike food condiment mustard. And so I am referring to a report in Notes from the Field, the MMWR from April 2013, and we'll put a link to that on the site. And this essentially summarizes the many, many mustard cases that we've had in the United States from 2004 to 2012. And when I was reading this case report or reading this case series that talked about these cases, I noticed that one of the cases reports an exposure in New England and that one of the lead authors on that case is my good friend, Kat Weibrecht. So uh, do, you, do you remember this, this mustard exposure? I do. It was a great case. Uh, one of my classmates was working down in an ER on the south coast of Massachusetts, uh, and he called me and he said, just out of curiosity, um, what would we do if we think someone got exposed to some sort of munitions from World War II, and there was some liquid in it, and now they have some burning pain and a blister on their arm. And I was like, uh, what? And so this was a 28-year-old gentleman who worked on a clamship, and they were dredging the bottom. And as part of that, they dredged up an old munitions that came onto the deck. I guess it happens all the time. They usually just throw it back in. It's not a big deal. Came up on the deck, and it was leaking some malodorous black stuff onto his arm. He didn't think much of it. Threw it back into the ocean, um, which is too bad for us because it would be great to see it as an artifact and then continued working 
Initially, he felt a little bit of burning on his arm, didn't pay it much attention. And then over the next four to six hours, it became much more painful. And over the first 12 to 18 hours, he started to develop some blisters in the site that he was hit with the liquid, which was his forearm and his leg. So wait a second. So, so wait. So he's, he's just out there fishing one day. Yeah. He's out there. He's a normal job. He's, yep. a, he's like a longshoreman, burly kind of yep. guy, probably. Okay. <laughs> All right. I assume. I don't know. I'm, I'm stereotyping here. I apologize. And so they get, in addition to sort of seafood, they also pull up this shell, mm-hmm. this artillery shell, which happens apparently occasionally. It happens fairly frequently, actually. Okay. So so frequently and so occasionally that they didn't go, oh yeah, I'm going to keep this. Right. They just okay. threw it back, like they, they always do. They threw it back. They can't eat this, can't sell it, I'm going to throw it back. Right. And unlike you or me in our daily professions, I would imagine that the, the longshoreman is not in like full gown protection or body fluid protection. No, he had on just his regular work clothes, pants, shirt. I think he had a long sleeve shirt on and some gloves, but the material was able to get through it pretty easily. And then this this black stuff? Well, that's, you know, I don't know how much of that is stuff that came up with it or actual liquid that was the sulfur mustard. Okay, all right. Oh, now you gave it away. Now, okay. No, but anyway, so so he had this, this, the black stuff drips on him. This just reminds you of like the X-Files. You know, you find this like old artifact, this black stuff drips onto it, and then you think nothing of it. And then several hours later, that area starts to start to hurt and burn and burn. So he has this burning area. And so, so it hurts. And so then he went to the emergency department. He did about 18 hours after his initial exposure. So if you can imagine that in that time, uh, so they were at sea, they returned to port, the entire crew offloaded, so any other one, anyone else that was potentially exposed got off the boat with him, the clams were not addressed at all, because nobody really knew what was going on, and he went to the emergency department down in the south coast, like I said, about 18 hours after he initially presented and this was back in 2010. So anyone who's listening who might have had bad clams in 2010, maybe it was actually mustard exposure. Well, the good news is each clam had to get cleaned uh, as part of the decontamination process before they could dispose of it. Okay, so nobody got mustard poisoning from the clams. Correct. Darn. Okay. Right. All right. Okay. Okay. So he has the burning thing. 18 hours later, he says, you know, I'm going to go to the emergency department. And can you imagine? So I wonder what was written on the complaint. Like... <laughs> Presenting complaint, munitions exposure. It was some combination of that and blisters on his arm. And and, and so the it, so the doc's talking to him, and oh, and what did he see? What, what so what did he have on exam? On his arm and on his leg, he had these tense blisters. They were yellowish in color. There was a little bit of erythema, the skin around it. Nothing was leaking out of it. He had already showered and, and changed his clothes and everything. Okay. Yeah. So you, I mean, you published this. As a uh, toxicology case report in Annals of Emergency Medicine in uh, January of 2012. And you've got some great photos, which I would highly recommend checking out. We'll put a link. But yeah, the photos show exactly what you're describing. And so the blistering is one thing. We've seen blistering before. But this is this is pretty severe blistering. And then there's yellow stuff in the blister, which I think everyone goes, and that's why they call it mustard. Maybe. Maybe. I don't think that's why they call it mustard. I'm just saying that the, I can't forget this case because every time I hear the word mustard, I think of this yellow-filled blister on this guy. Right. Okay, so so they see this. They decide not to call him crazy. Correct. And they call you. Right. Okay. One of, our, one of my classmates called me. And so our recommendations at the time were just to go ahead and 
decontaminate him again, decontaminate anyone that came into any contact with him. So everybody washed, changed clothes, things like that, even though it had been quite a while since his exposure and even though he had already taken a shower at home. And then they did pain management. They were concerned about possible infections, so they covered him with antibiotics, and then they shipped him up to UMass to be seen um, at the tertiary care center. Okay, so he got a field trip. Yes. Um, he went up to UMass where <laughs> he was... Um, this always happens with these kinds of cases because they're so cool in some respect. He then became um, an object of interest to many, and probably every med student and resident and toxicology fellow was, was brought to his bedside. Yes, it, it was fascinating. We were very excited about it. Not that we wish ill on any patients, but it certainly is good for us when things like that happen. Yeah, it's, it's educational. So he came up, and then what happened? So when he got there, he was still complaining of some discomfort, and the pain is probably one of them can be one of the most disabling parts of the exposure long term, as long as they don't succumb to something sooner than that. So if you have long term effects, it's usually the chronic pain from the at the blister sites. So he came; his blisters were still intact initially, and based on what literature was out there, less than two centimeters, you sort of leave it intact. Bigger than that, you might consider debriding it. We just treated his pain and admitted him to the hospital. We did actually obtain samples of the fluid that we sent off for analysis, and then we sent his urine for analysis as well. Um, in addition to looking for the sulfur mustard, we were also looking for lewisite because sulfur mustard was more prominently used World War One, World War Two, and um, one of the interesting things about it is at high temperatures it vaporizes much easier and so the exposure is more of a inhalational exposure or an ocular exposure maybe in mucous membranes when it's a liquid at cooler temperatures it is more of the dermal exposures that you can run into and lewisite had been added to change the physical properties of it in colder temperatures it wasn't just this sludgy liquid it would be more of a liquid or a vapor so it it could maintain the penetrance of sort of moderate temperatures without having the solidification issue. So it was still... Okay. So what really what you're referring to is its use, and this is not a naturally occurring substance. This is not an inadvertent exposure to a chemical used for other means. This is one of the original chemical weapons originally developed during World War II to uh, be used against your enemy. And, and you have people designing it so that it maintains its fluid nature so that it can be spread. You don't want a chemical weapon just to freeze into a block of ice and not be dangerous. And you really want to be able to sort of inflict terror and fear in your enemy. And you have this great description about how one of the ways that it was used is it would become sort of this greasy substance and you would leave it on places. And then if your enemy was was sort of uh, took hold of your base or advanced and, and was, um, uh, was kind of in your, in your foxhole or something, they would touch something greasy and then all of a sudden pause and go, oh my gosh, what did I just touch? And I have had that fear also. Usually it's not about mustard. Usually it's greasy or sticky and I don't know what it was, but it's not mustard. But this is, they were really worried about this as a chemical weapon. Do you want to talk more about that? That's probably my favorite part about the whole thing uh, in terms of sulfur mustard exposures is just the psychological fear that can come along with it. It's not just the physical effects. So the sulfur mustard as a liquid sticks around in the environment for a long period of time at moderate temperatures in 
hotter places like when it was used in Iraq it vaporized a lot more and so it wasn't sticking around quite as long but for World War II it was the penetrance was much higher and so anytime someone would touch an oily substance they just automatically assumed wow that could be sulfur mustard am I gonna all of a sudden have these debilitating blisters with pain and you know possible issues with infection down the road and so that added component the psychological fear I think is a really fascinating part of the chemical warfare. Yeah, and you'll see these great propaganda posters from especially World War II about sort of nerve gases and sulfur mustards and other chemical weapons and really that sense of fear that was there. And so they were putting it in a munition to fire it at somebody else. For okay. the most part, yep. Okay, okay. Do we know how this got into the ocean then? There are a fair amount of documented and undocumented dumping sites all over the world, along the coastlines in particular, in coastal waters that don't really belong to any particular country and so it's a good place to get rid of some of your chemical weapons. So these places don't house just mustards, they also house nerve gases and other things like that. So there's a fair amount that I don't think is known about what's in the bottom of the ocean. Okay, and then the unsuspecting fisherman just kind of drags up the artillery shell and then the black stuff drips on there. And so let's let's talk more about this. So if, if, if I got an exposure to, uh, you know, a bad acid or, or a caustic, then I would pretty much immediately feel pain and probably go for medical care. But this, this works differently, right? It does. There's usually a delayed onset of symptoms. So it starts out with some pain and then the blisters develop later. But it can take up to four to six hours before they initially feel any discomfort. Uh, and the blisters can develop over the first 24 to 36 hours after exposure. And so what's happening is you have to have time for the chemical to get into your cells to create the byproducts that actually cause cellular damage. So the resulting blister is filled with fluid, but it's not toxic fluid. It's just fluid because the membranes between the cells have been broken down into such a way, uh, DNA has been interrupted in such a way that the skin just doesn't hold together the way it should. Okay, so that nasty orange or that nasty yellow mustard looking fluid in those blisters was merely more sort of the, the end product of cellular injury and was not a depot of mustard. Correct. And this is this is a perfect example. I was talking to somebody about um, radiation exposure the other day, and this is effectively similar to that. You know, with radiation exposure, you can get exposed to it, it injures your cells, and then you're going to continue to have symptoms for days from it, but the actual radiation source might be gone. Right. And then everyone freaks out when they see a wound, and they don't know if they're going to get exposed to it. Did you Did you get that question from... From medical staff there, you know, can this guy get the mustard onto me and what should we do? We did. We actually ran into a fair amount of trouble with that once we were trying to admit him to the floor and we had to explain to people that all he needs is the initial decontamination of the liquid. And so he had been decontaminated effectively twice. So he was fine and whatever was contained in his body, either the urine metabolites or the breakdown products in the blister fluid were not dangerous at all. Okay. And then, so these products, so we still, we use them for uh, chemotherapeutics and other things, right? I mean, they're, they're essentially DNA damagers. Correct. They're alkylating agents. Nitrogen mustard is what we're most commonly used to thinking about. Um, and that's what we see in practice for a medical use. And it's the same mechanism. They basically go up into the DNA and then interrupt DNA replication in such a way that you can't progress. Okay. And so that causes cell death and then you get the, the blistering. And then I guess if you were going to inhale this or get this in your eyes, you would, it would be pretty devastating. It could be. And so that's why there's sort of a different pattern of injury 
depending on the climate where it's been released. So in the Iran-Iraq uh, wars, what they would see was more of inhalational exposure and much more of an issue with pulmonary edema. But when you're exposed to the liquid form, it tends to be more of the dermal exposure. Some ocular or mucosal exposures or injury if there was exposure there, but much less common. Either way, if there's a a large amount inhaled of the vapor or a large dermal exposure, the biggest side effect would be bone marrow suppression, neutropenia, and uh, resulting secondary infection. Okay, so you're not going to see a lot of electrolyte problems. It's mainly going to be essentially like somebody on chemo. For the most part. I mean, if you have enough of a a body surface that's blistered, it's going to be like any other burn patient in terms of fluid and electrolyte losses. So you'd manage that the same way. Okay, yeah. And so... I want to, I think I think we, we looked at this uh, case series and we noted that you had probably you had the only um, civilian exposure that's correct uh, in the case series so if you're working a shift and and some fan of our show who also likes to do longshore fishing has just touched a greasy artillery shell and comes to your ED and says I think I was exposed to sulfur mustard what what would you recommend we do I mean you can just do basic decontamination with soap and water. There were some studies that looked at whether bleach was more effective. There's not really a difference. So the best thing is just to clean the skin, get rid of any clothing that has it on it, and anyone that's been exposed should be cleaned in the same way. So basic decontamination, and then watching and waiting. And then these are things, I think we. it's nice to talk about these. We always talk about the historical relevance of some of these agents, and then I think some people roll their eyes because they say, okay, that's old stuff. But I think in this age of sort of a concern over bioterrorism and concern over or groups, the older stuff tends to be easier to make. And this is something that a lot of, you know, rogue agencies could make and use. They tend to not use it because it's limited in its application. It's probably going to hurt the applier just as much as the, the person who receives it. But this is something that we could go on to see used in the future. Certainly, I mean, in modern history, as you mentioned in the Iran-Iraq war, this was used and uh, even though it's been banned under modern conventions of warfare, if somebody wanted to, they could very well just sort of try to um, release this on a hot day in Texas and it would be volatilized or similarly spread it someplace else. And so it's good to be aware of this class of agent. Not to mention, I mean, it's while it's more of a historical toxin for the United States, internationally it's not. It's much more commonly seen. You know, in the 80s you had the Iran-Iraq War, uh, but there's also more sort of munitions dumping grounds in some of the the smaller bodies of water in Europe and surrounding areas. And by smaller, I just mean not the size of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, so the Baltic Sea or the Mediterranean. And so the potential for exposure is much higher there just because there's more dumping there. And they've actually seen a lot more of the civilian cases than we have in the States. Okay. Yeah. And that's something that as we see sort of destabilization of a lot of these longstanding regimes that have stockpiled a lot of this stuff, we might start to see more and it's, it's a smaller world. I guess the, the take-home pearls would be uh, just be aware of the agent. It's sort of like a chemical, delayed chemical burn. The, be aware of the routes of exposure in the U.S., I guess more accidental exposure to dated artillery, but for international travelers, they might be exposed to inappropriately discarded munitions and then just the treatment, because these guys can get pretty severe burns and wounds. Yeah, so just to summarize, um, exposure to initial symptoms might be four to six hours. 
blistering starts to, to develop around that time that can develop over 24 to 36 hours. Other things, you can have some injury to the eye, the mucosa membranes. If it's an inhaled exposure, you can have some pulmonary toxicity, pulmonary edema. Um, the people that have died from mustard exposures, and this is not all that common, either die from a very large dermal exposure that leads to losses from like a, a large burn victim or leads to a significant neutropenia from bone marrow suppression and a um, systemic infection. And the other would be a large inhalational exposure where they would have a bad enough lung injury that it was fatal. But for the most part, it's more of an incapacitating agent because of the burns and the, the pain and things like that rather than a quick killer. And did you get any sort of FBI involvement on this case? Was there any sort of federal interest because of the um, sort of the nature of the exposure? Um, we had the Coast Guard involved, but that was more because the um, ship had unloaded its contents and its crew and gone back up to sea with a new crew. And so there was concern about whether the deck was still contaminated and they needed to be decontaminated. They were quarantined for several days while we were trying to figure everything out. Um, so they were involved. We had involvement with the CDC that was more at our discretion just for help because we don't see it that much. And there was uh, some folks from the Navy that came in. And so we had different resources available to us, but that was more for our own education and, and how to proceed. Great. Well, I want to thank you for returning to this very exciting moment in your uh, in your career. I hope that none of us ever has to see this again, but definitely something that we should be aware of and something we might be seeing more of. I guess I'll have to have you sign my copy of the uh, MMWR, being the one of the prime <laughs> contributors to the literature. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. And that's another edition of Talks Talk. That's it for another episode of Talks Talk. As always, if you like what you hear, you can respond to us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Check out our Twitter feed at TalksTalk and our Facebook page. We've gotten some great comments from listeners that way um, that have gone into past and future shows. And uh, be on the lookout for some of that. We're hoping to put out an upcoming show on mushroom toxicity and cover some more of the other issues that you've been contacting us about. Also, check us out in the iTunes store and feel free to drop a comment. That's often how others find out about us. Talks Talk is made possible by contributions from the University of Massachusetts, Department of Emergency Medicine, and Division of Toxicology. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.